going to explain a lot. <laughs> it's going to explain a lot. It's also going to help you to fully understand that there is a segment division in here that we want to pull all the chapters into the, the concept of it so that you at least personally can go back and read all the, the chapters that hold together as one little segment division because that will give you the full flow of thought for the totality of it, not just chapter 12 all by itself. You don't want to isolate it, okay? All right, because I do think when you do that, you get a lot of answers to some of the things that are being said, and it clarifies for you, you know, why it is that he's saying the things that he is saying. So, does can anybody tell me what they recall about the context for 1 Corinthians? Does anybody remember who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians? Paul, it's a good guess because, it, it, I mean, he wrote so many of them. You can just shout it out and you'll probably be pretty close, right? Paul, oh, no, it wasn't Paul, it was Luke. Oh, okay, no, it was Paul. All right, so Paul wrote. Now, do you remember why Paul was writing the letter to the Corinthian church? What was going on in Corinth? There you go. Okay, so he was writing to them because there were some problems, weren't there? Do you remember how Paul addresses these uh, Corinthian believers? What does he call them? Babes, right? They're babes. They're immature, right? And because of their their childlike faith, and not childlike in a good way, but childish, okay, uh, behaviors and attitudes. What was what was the result of that? What was coming about to happen in this church because of their division? Now, you tell me, have you ever uh, been in conversations or experienced division because of the subject of spiritual gifts? Have you ever been in a conversation where there's a, a, a chasm between you and the other people in the room. I'm only seeing one head nod. Wow. Really? Only one person in the room? Uh, okay. Do you want to share at all about what you have experienced concerning the divisions that can come about because of this subject? Wow. Do you, okay, that's a really good point. Some people say these gifts are not even in use today. They're obsolete because, because, do you know why they say it's obsolete? The perfect has come. You know what they call the perfect, by the way? Not Jesus. They call the word, the canonized word of God. Because the word has become canonized for us, now we no longer need the gifts. Now, that is one teaching that's other. It's very interesting, though. Um, I think that passage it actually lists several of the gifts. It says, um, when the perfect comes, then talks about the tongues will cease and um, knowledge will cease. And I can't remember what the other one is. But because these things are going to cease when the perfect comes. But then you have to ask the question, particularly about the subject of knowledge, do we no longer need knowledge? <laughs> right? And if you continue in that same passage, you find out that the, what the perfect was, was Jesus himself. So it was speaking about him, and it was speaking about him when he comes. 
when it was written, when he comes, right? So if you think of that on a, uh, in a timeline, you're in the church, the letter's being written right then. When is the, when is the church come in perspective to the cross? The letter to that church comes after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So his first coming has already come. So if this church is now saying, when he comes, these will see. So what time frame is it talking about? The second coming. <laughs> okay. So that cannot be a proper interpretation either. So, yes, that's a very good one to bring up. And it, for those of you who don't know about some of these controversials, that's just one. And that one is actually, I think, less challenging to handle than some of the others, right? Um, oh, boy, you hit the hot button one, right? Not and speaking in tongues and along with speaking in tongues, what's a, what are some of the others that are similar? Interpretation of tongues, miracles, healings, right? Any of these kind of ex extraordinary kinds of, of what we call sign gifts, or that's how I refer to them as sign gifts. Um, those gifts th then become a real hot button, and a lot of it has even caused chasms so that complete churches have been created to only um, basically address or to emphasize that one spiritual gift of tongues, right? By the way, they kind of, they kind of let the, the interpretation part go, however, they, but they emphasize the, the tongue speaking, right? And then you get a whole church based on that. How, do you think that's a healthy body based on what we just read this week? to have a whole congregation of people who all speak in tongues. And one of the issues with that is that uh, a, a lot of those churches will teach that, er that speaking in tongues is a sign of what? That you have the Holy Spirit. And what do you think from what we looked at just this week? Not everyone will have that gift, right? So it's going to help clarify, I think, some misunderstandings and some bad teachings that are out there. However, it's also going to keep a balance and say, but that doesn't mean that tongues is not a, a gift and that it's not useful in the body of Christ today. That it's, as a matter of fact, from what we learn, it's necessary, right? It has a necessary part to play in the in the body of Christ. Okay, so that's a couple of things. Um, so contextually, we had a we have a body here that we are looking at a fellowship, a congregation. They are babies, meaning they have not matured in their spiritual knowledge and faith in Christ, have not grown up in their doctrines. Um, and these immaturities has caused all kinds of divisions. Do you guys kind of remember some of the things? Not only divisions, but sin. Okay, and, and I would like to even emphasize that divisions is sin, right? And so what this was is this was a church that on the whole had a whole lot of sinning going on because they weren't, they weren't maturing in their knowledge. So and one, just one of the subjects is spiritual gifts. Okay, so what's really kind of cool is we're, we're stepping back into our 1 Corinthians study this week, and we're expounding our insight on what we looked at when we, when we hit chapter 12. So we get to kind of grow it in our, our own personal understanding. So we have, he wrote to correct problems and to answer questions, both, right? There was two things that he was doing when, when he covered uh, the book on the whole, que uh, problems and questions. He starts with the problem because it's the systemic issue, 
in those first several chapters, he covers the issue of them not maturing, not growing up, and therefore they've remained babies. He talks about the fact that he wants to write to them and giving them meat, but they can't even handle it. Even still, they can't handle it. He had been with them before and taught them, but they weren't capable of taking it in yet, so he held back. Now, all this time later, he's going, you know what? I still can't give you meat. You guys still haven't grown up, right? How do you grow up? How can you grow up in, in your maturity as a Christian? Yeah, the word of God itself. It's the doctrines. It's understanding what God says about subjects, how to handle it, how to respond to the world, how to uh, walk in a way that honors the Lord, to understand even your fundamental faith walk with God, things like the subject of covenant. I would talk about that a lot in here. And uh, we had this come up, didn't we, just yesterday in a Sunday school class. Um, uh, Kathy and I were in a, in a um, group. I'll just say it that way. We were in a group, watched a video, and the speaker in the video was mixing apples and oranges. He was comparing apples to oranges. He was comparing subjects of problems that were going on concerning the law, but then he was comparing it to the new covenant, and he was kind of merging the two, and it's like, you can't even compare those two things. They're not the same covenants. Yes, they're both a covenant, but one is the law, it's, it's conditional, right? It's not a salvation covenant. It was a congregational covenant that the the collective whole went into, right? But then there's the covenant of grace that we walk in through Jesus Christ, which is grace. You're saved not of yourselves. It's a work of grace, right? And it's God's giving to you. It's, it is unconditional. Nothing you do gets you into that relationship with God. And therefore, your, your relationship with God is absolutely assured regardless of what you do or don't do right? But then in co in a covenant are responsibilities. And so he was kind of mixing these two together, and it became a problem. <laughs> it confused, uh, I'll bet, a lot of people in that room. All right. So what we want to know is doctrines. We want to know what does God say on the subject. And in order to get through 1 Corinthians, we have to back up just a little bit here to set our context. We're in a church that had a lot of problems. There was divisions. They were babies in Christ. They had not matured. They did not have their doctrines down, right? And therefore, it was causing them to fall into all kinds of sins. But we had some really overt sins going on in that church. You guys remember some of the things that they were doing? Yeah, he was having a relationship with his, basically his stepmother, right? His father's wife. He's having his father's wife. And you're, and the church was doing nothing about it. It was like, really? Okay. <laughs> so that was just one example. And there were many others as well. Okay. Um, the other thing is they were following men rather than God. That was a huge one. They're, they had, because Greece and the, the Greek mind in those days was so impressed with knowledge and wisdom, right? They were into the, the, um, the philosophers and the, the great speakers. And it, in one of the, the statements in the first part of 1 Corinthians, he says that basically some are of Apollos and some are of um, Paul and some are of Christ. Well, obviously, we need to be of Christ, right? But why were some of them of Apollos? Because Apollos was a smooth-speaking, 
polished speaker. So people loved to associate themselves with Apollos because he was a great speaker. But Paul apparently was not. Isn't that amazing to you? He's a great writer, but apparently not a great speaker. Um, hold on a second. I need to find a tissue. My nose is dripping. Um, I got it. I did it. Yeah, I know. I should have remembered that before I started. I'm, I have 1,500 boxes of those all over my house. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. All right. So immature in faith, there's divisions and there's quarrels. So that's the premise upon what we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 12. He's writing to correct a problem. Okay. This is not like, oh, this is all about spiritual gifts because you guys are so great. It's you guys have got this all wrong and I'm going to correct the problems that you've got concerning this gift. And I want you to pay attention because these are doctrines I'm laying down to correct what's going on. All right. Now, the other thing that's important to know is chapters 11 to 14 are a segment division. That segment division is correcting error and disorder in church assemblies. Okay. It's when it's the, when I did my at-a-glance chart for my first Corinthians, I have it here, if anybody wants to look at it. We have a section right here, Disorder in Church Assembly. Uh, verse 11 opens it, and then 12, 13, and 14 actually address just one of those problems in assembly. So this is kind of interesting. Chapter 11 covered two issues. Does anybody kind of remember what the problems were in church assembly? One had to do with women. Women and head coverings. And the problem basically was all about what? What were these women not doing? That Right? It was all about rebellion. Them not showing proper respect for the order of things that God had put in place. And so they were being rude, basically, and disrespectful in the church assembly, calling men out or challenging men and their authority as they spoke or taught or led in whatever capacity, and it was becoming a problem. So it was about their the disorder that these women were causing, okay? Then the next one was about the Lord's Supper. Do you remember what happened in first, the second part of 1 Corinthians 11 for what was the problem with the um, Lord's Supper? Yeah. It's really amazing. They were showing up. Some of them were getting there early and basically gorging themselves, getting drunk of all things, right? And then their brothers and sisters in Christ who, who lingered in later were having nothing. And they, this was the Lord's Supper. This was the, the, the table of the Lord that was for the congregation to come together, to partake in a meal. It was a little bit more extravagant than what we understand taking the Lord's Supper in our worship service today, where we come, we get a little cracker and a little wine, and we're done, right? But they came, they had a meal, and it was called the Lord's Supper, and they would partake of bread and of wine together, and they do it in, in remembrance of Christ and his last supper with his disciples. And this church had gotten to the place where they were just disregarding other people. Not be, think, about, think about how this now flow of thought. Does that not help you a whole lot? Then when you hit chapter 12 and you start thinking about spiritual gifts, and you think, wow, they were there was rebellion in these women, there was rudeness and disregard for the fellow brethren in the Lord's table, and now in spiritual gifts, right? Whatever, right? All these things that we're going to talk about. Now, 12 
opens the subject, but don't stop there. Because 13 covers, now we all know what 1 Corinthians 13 is about, right? Everybody knows that. What is it? It's the love chapter. It's all about what? So when you look at the love chapter, it says you can have this gift, but if you don't have love, you have nothing. You can have this gift, but if you don't have love, you have nothing. So can you see how that follows on after 1 Corinthians 12, where 12 lists the uh, giftings, and it's going to tell you how you get them and when and for what purpose and who designs it and all these things. It's going to lay down the doctrines, and then 13 is going to say, yeah, but you can have all those gifts listed, any one of those gifts or any number of those gifts. But in 13, he's going to say, but the overriding thing that you need to remember is that without love as the motivator behind your exercising of your gift, what? It's nothing. Right, And then he goes to 14, and 14 completes his message on this problem area of spiritual gifting. And he talks about, and if you, if you ever do it on your own, and you might want to do this for yourself, if you go into 1 Corinthians 14, you want to mark the word church as one of your key words. And what I mean by church is the assembling of the body of Christ together for worship. It's the congregational gathering time. And that's what he's talking about is in chapter 14, when you gather congregationally and you are exercising and in the, the one gift that he hones in on was tongues, right, and prophecy. And he lays out basically proper orderliness in the exercising of those gifts, how it is supposed to be done. So to me, this actually, I always think for those churches that are are created where they emphasize the gifts and the way that I have seen it happen, just the couple of times I have seen it, um, they do not handle it in the way that 1 Corinthians 14 says. And so uh, it's surprising to me because for a, a, a church philosophy that's all based on that one thing, you'd think they'd be an expert at what the scripture says on it, but that, yet they don't do it. Now, I'm not here to bash any one group. I'm just telling you this is a an age-old problem area, okay? This is nothing new, and it's still a problem. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that particular gift is still a problem for us? Okay, yeah, this is kind of unusual, isn't it? Right. It's like, whoa, be, get behind me, Satan, you devil, you, right? A little bit. You kind of feel scared by, uh, of it, right? Now, should we be afraid of a spiritual gift? No, we should not. For those of you in this room who are secretly sitting there and in your mind going, well, I speak in tongues. Well, I speak in Dude, That's fine. Great. And we're so happy. And you know what I'm really happy about is that because you do and you're here to learn, once you learn, you're going to be able to share your knowledge and, and take the gift that you have and and uh, what is the right word? You're going to you're going to rein it in. You're going to get it under its proper control as God designed it to be used. And when you do that, it is going to be more powerful and more effectual in your life and in the life of those that you will touch as you exercise your gift than ever before. And that is actually true of every one of these gifts. A person with the with the gift of serving is going to be a more effective server if they understand what their design purpose is and what God intends you to do in your serving capacity.
Um, some of the big mistakes we make, think about it. What, what are some big mistakes that people make when they're serving in the body of Christ in various capacities? If you've got, say, a mercy gift, how might that end up being a problem? Okay. Jump in ahead of things, maybe. Okay. And in particular, jump in ahead of God. Right? Yeah. Right. Because you're so compassionate in your feeling, and it's very, it is a very emotional based gifting, which you know I don't have. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I apologize ahead of time. <laughs> but people who come to me sometimes, they really think I'm going to be merciful. And I'm like, well, you know, if you do that and it hap- this is what happens, then don't do that, right? <laughs> I'm just, I'm a pragmatic. I'm not a, I'm not super tender. And I try to be, but it's hard. But a person who is, they can go beyond the boundaries and almost prevent that person from learning valuable lessons because you're trying to cover them with your love and your uh, comfort, right? So you don't allow them to suffer to learn if that's what God needs them to do, possibly. And you have to, this is it, you have to use a discerning to decide which, how far to go with a person in mercy, right? Okay, so that's a good, so besides tongues having a problem, All the gifts can have a problem, right? I have a list. I'll be bringing it in as we move into the part of our study where we're going to look at each one of the gifts. Basically, in some weeks, we look at two or three of them in one week, which is really fast. But when we do that, I have a list uh, from years ago, actually, from, whoa, like 30 years ago in my life when I first did spiritual gifts. Um, And I have a, a list that gives you what a person might look like when they're exercising under the inspiration of God and in a, in a proper way, and how they might look when they're operating in the flesh. So that you can kind of see both sides of yourself. This isn't for you to analyze others. It's for you to analyze your own self. But when you look at that list, you can go, oh. So because your giftedness equips you supernaturally to handle certain things, if you do that in your flesh and not by the leading of the Holy Spirit, you can come across in a negative way rather than a positive. And so there's, I have a list that will show you that. That's very in, insightful. I think you'll enjoy it. All right. So now what we have then is disorder in church assembly. That's your context. Okay. Disorder in church assembly. If there's disorder, what you can know then is when you're looking in chapter 12 of of, um, 1 Corinthians that what we are looking at is the opening statements about a gift being, uh, in particular, it's going to work into being tongues and prophecy, but primarily tongues. And it's going to be saying that there's a problem. And when he says now concerning, he's saying I'm answering a question that you posed to me. Right? So he's answering a question that they had about this. And he's going to lay down then in the first opening portion of this, chapter 12, what? What is he going to lay out for you? What did you see when you did your homework this week? Okay, good. That's his purpose, is that you are not going to be unaware. Do you know what it means to be unaware? 
Did anybody do a word study on that one? It was not in your list from K. I found that out when I, I was kind of surprised she didn't have you look at that one, but um, did anybody look at it anyway? Yes or no? No. Okay, let me give it to you because it's really good. Um, uh, it's, uh, the Greek number is 50, ag agneo, A-G-N-O-E-O. -E it's actually a root word for agnostic which I didn't, I didn't know that, but it means without, ignorant, not to know, in error or sin through mistake. It can be sin or error through mistake. The mistake is you don't have the knowledge. Now that part to me is your own fault. <laughs> if you don't have the knowledge about it, it's because you've chosen to either not pursue it or you purposely said, I don't care what you have to say, I don't want to hear it. Now let me tell you something, as a teacher, I have come across this a lot. There are people who, for instance, hold certain doctrinal belief systems, like um, creation is a really good one, the Genesis study is always a hot, another hot button topic, right? Were we created or did we evolve, right? And the scripture is very clear that God created, he spoke and it came into being. But people who hold to creation, evolution as their system of how the world came into being, they are ignorant. And as a matter of fact, there's another place in scripture that says that they are willfully ignorant of things like the flood. They won't even acknowledge those kinds of things. But Ignorance to me is a person who willfully says, I know you have something you want to teach me about this, but I don't want to hear it because I don't believe you. I don't like to discuss that. Mainly it's because they don't want to be challenged, I think. And so they just refuse to even hear on it. Okay, so let's, let's put this up here, establishing doctrine. So the first thing Paul is going to do then when he enters into this segment of uh, spiritual gifts, this next three chapters of spiritual gifts, and he is going to um, correct the errors that are going on. And in order to correct error, if you're not going to be ignorant any longer, what must he first do? Establish doctrines. So that's what you're seeing in chapter 12 are the doctrines about, about the subject of spiritual gifts. Isn't that awesome? So what you are doing is you are establishing your doctrines on this subject. That is why... Precept chooses 1 Corinthians 12 as your first step into this subject matter. Because when you're doing a subject study, the first thing you have to do is establish doctrines. You have to understand. Do you remember when we did our subject study on covenant? Where did we go when we first wanted to understand the subject matter of covenant? Where did, what was the first thing we went to look for? Yes. First use of the word, right? Well, these are the these passages that we're going to be looking at. First one, starting in First Corinthians 12, are the first ex written, expressed passages that that explain the doctrines concerning spiritual gifts. So, first use of a word in the context in your in your Bible is its most declarative understanding. So, this is your most declarative insights on doctrines concerning it. So, we're going to get some of them from this passage. Okay. So, Paul's purpose. He says, do not be unaware. Okay, and that's in 12.1. So that's the verse, very first thing he says. That's number 50, unaware, and it's A, 
A-G-N-O-E-O, agnoio, I guess, it means ignorant, not to know, uh, to error, or sin, and I think that's important to remember, through mistake. So there's a lot of people out there who are so unaware and untrained concerning the subject matter of spiritual gifts that by, by the error of their ignorance, they are, they are sinning in the way that they are exercising their gifting. And so he's going to correct that. That's what he, his purpose is here. And then he goes on to say to them, um, a he gives us a contrast. Now, before I do that, let's go back over here. Let's set that context again. Context, number one, to, uh, let's do this. Why written, right? To correct um, problems. Basically, chapters one through six do that. Okay, and then uh, that was number one. And then number two is to answer questions. And that's in chapter 7 to 16. Um, their, pro their problems is babes in Christ. And they're immature in faith. And therefore they are sinning. And it has to do with swimming. And then there's divisions and quarrels. All right. So that sets us up. That's chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, if you want to go back and look at that. It's also seen in chapters 3, 1 to 3. Okay? Immature in their faith. Now, I'm going to show you here chapter... I should have written this down as we were saying it. Chapter 11 to 14 is Paul correcting uh, error concerning church assembly. Okay. I, and I can tell you, it's really interesting to me that some of the um, people that I've, some of the places of the classes I've sat through where they flip into chapter 14, when they, once they hit 14, they take what's being said there and make it to the individual rather than an application to the congregation. And it's an, it is an assembly that is being addressed. It's how to behave in the assembly not to the individual. And by doing that, then they create for themselves even more error in understanding that the, their doctrines get thrown out of whack because they switch from church assembly to personal. And that's how they get some of their errors in their understanding. Okay, so now let's do this. Let's start then. If we want to establish our understanding correctly in spiritual gifting, we want to start by first looking at just some basic things like, like our word studies. So Kay had you do one of your day's homework was all on your um, 
word city. So let's just define the words to begin with, just to give us a foundation. Uh, the word spiritual. It's in 12.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Now we talked about unaware, what it means to, is to be ignorant, but it talks about spiritual gifts there. Now in the original language, I want you to know the word gifts is not in that sentence. So you might want to put a parenthesis around it. In the original language, it just says concerning spirituals. Okay? And it really does not change anything by adding the word gifts in there. It actually is a correct interpretation, but I just want you to know it means that they added it, and sometimes that can skew a little bit how you're looking at something. So we're going to look at what it actually says. Now concerning spirituals. Now what does it mean, spirituals? What did that word mean? Okay, um, and was that the word uh, pneumaticos? Okay, good. So pneumaticos, and you're saying it 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 is things belonging to what? Well, this is very interesting because. The invisible sphere is, I'm not too sure that's a really good definition. Only be, okay, well, because the word, one of the things that you're going to see when you come to the end of that is, go to 12.7. Take a look at chapter 12, verse 7. Because when we get through all of this, I, it, I know it talks about the invisible. In other words, what it's saying is that the spirit itself is invisible. But when you pull that into the definition, what happens is it's saying that, it's, that the spirit, therefore, is not seen, correct? Because it's invisible. But what does it say in 12.7? It's a manifestation of the spirit. So the re end result of that spirituals in verse 1 is a manifestation that is seen. It's something that reveals that the Spirit is present. Now, yes, the Holy Spirit himself is invisible, obviously, but I almost wonder if they... Um, yeah. Okay. Yes, it, yeah, it was. It is, but go ahead. Okay, I know. I'm a little. I'm just a little puzzled why they would why they would emphasize the invisible the, the invisible quality rather than just saying the spirit because we know the spirit's invisible in that we don't physically see his presence. But there you go. Okay, relating to it. Got it. Okay, now it makes sense. Okay, so relating to the invisible sphere, and so then what it does is it draws you to affix yourself to understanding that this is related to the Holy Spirit himself. Okay, I like that. Okay, and the only reason I want to wanted to split hairs on that is because the end result of this is a manifestation of it that's visible. So, I mean, because one of the things that I do really love about doing a gift on 
uh, this spiritual gift study is we're going to be talking a whole lot more about the Holy Spirit. It's a subject that in particularly like like what Janice said earlier, and I came from Baptist background too, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit much. It's kind of one of those subjects that gets put to the side. We talk about God the Father all the time. We see We talk about Jesus all the time, a lot, right? But the Holy Spirit kind of gets put on the back burner and a lot of it is because of what you just said he's invisible right he's a spirit form but in this study what this is teaching us is that these gifts that are given to us is the way that God manifests in a visible way and when you actually do a topical study on the Holy Spirit the spirit is not an it it's a what it's a he and so he is a personage and he's one of the three persons of the whole of the trinity right of the triune godhead and so i think that by talking about the invisibility part without without it being prefaced with it's relating to the fact that it's an invisible because the end result is going to be that it becomes manifested yes Right. Yes. Right. That's a good point. No, it is a comment. It's a good one, actually. And uh, I kind of laugh all the time when I see all these ghost things on TV all the time. And uh, for those of us who've done inductive study, and we now know about this place called Sheol and where a person goes when they die, you are either present with the Lord or you're where? in Sheol, right, the place of torment like the rich man in Luke 16. So you are, and it's a, a place that's bound. It's got a border to it, so to speak, that, that prevents you from coming and going. People die. There are no spirits walking the earth, period. Your grandma died. When she died, she is either hopefully in heaven with the Lord, but if not, she is bound in a place called Sheol, waiting for the day of judgment. But she is not wandering the earth. So if you're seeing spirits, ghosts, as they say, these are demonic forces. These are not people. And you're right. So that the whole subject of the Holy Ghost kind of makes you step back a little bit and make you feel a little uncomfortable. So therefore, we don't talk about it much. We don't teach on it a whole lot. And we need to. We need to do a better job of it. So to, this study will do that for us, I think. Okay. So. Uh, pneumaticos is to be belonging to, thank you though, Lisa, for being patient with me, because <laughs> I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not arguing, all I'm doing is I just want to correct the, the nuance to that just a little bit. Okay, belonging to um, the divine spirit, right? Or holy spirit. Holy Ghost. Okay. Um, and w was there anything beyond that? The fact that it was something that pertained to or belonged to when you looked at that word spiritual? Okay. So it's one who is filled with it, right? Okay. One who is filled with and governed by, mine said. Okay. 
the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. Okay. Uh-huh. Yes, isn't that interesting? That is right. And so because so the the probably one of the major functions then of the Holy Spirit do, is to do what for us in our relationship with God. Do you guys remember what happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when we looked at it? It's been a while ago that we did that. But 1 Corinthians uh 2, that's uh, over here. No. Nope. Oh, I don't have it on here. Um, I think it's in chat. It's in verses 14, 12, 13, 14. But it talks about how it is that you can spiritually understand things, right? People who don't spiritually discern things, why don't they? Because they don't have the Spirit of God. And when God gives us His Holy Spirit, what does He give us? The mind of Christ. Isn't that amazing? And so the Holy Spirit's working, as what Jan is just saying, the one who is filled with and governed by the Holy Spirit is done is done so because in 1 Corinthians, the very book that we are working in, he has already laid down the doctrine that the reason that you can even understand spiritual matters is because God has given you the mind of Christ, and the way that he did that was by the Holy Spirit of God. When he gave you the Holy Spirit, he gave you the mind of Christ, which all of a sudden opens your eyes and you start to see and understand things that before made no sense to you. Right? All right. Very good. Okay, so that's the word spiritual. That starts there. Now let's go ahead and look at that word gifts. And the reason I I told you that the gifts is actually, it is a good interpretation to add it in their spiritual gifts is because down in verse 4 he's he actually links spirituals with gifts and he literally does a switcheroo if you don't add the word gifts up in verse 1 because it's really not there in the original Greek now concerning spirituals brethren then he goes to verse 4 and he says now there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit so you can see how it makes sense to add spiritual gifts up in verse 1 for clarity in the English language, but in the in the original language, the original Greek, it was not there. But I can see how they got it. So let's look at that word gifts as well. And what is um, gifts? Mm -hmm. Charisma. We like that word, don't we? I like to have charisma. I don't have much, but I like charisma. <laughs> okay, so charisma, and it means what? How is it defined? A gift of grace. Now, what does that tell you right there? It's a gift, and if it's grace, what? It comes from God. When you, to, if, if you're given a gift, is that something you ask for? No. Is it something that you've earned? No. Is it something that you should expect necessarily? No. God gave it as grace to you. There's another thing that we associate grace. What is that? Our salvation itself. It's a gift of grace, right? So uh, 
salvation is a gift of grace and your spiritual gifting is a gift of grace. Isn't that interesting? So if you've got it down nice, solid, and pat that your salvation is by grace and not by works, you should be able to then also move that same thought over into your spiritual gifting understanding for your, for your doctrines. Your, your giftedness is by grace. It's not something you earned. Um, I remember Lisa and I had a conversation about, you know, what's the difference between um, personal giftedness, your personal talents, right, your skills that you've learned. That And by the way, does God not grace all humanity with some measure of skills and talents and abilities, right? It, but would you say, having looked at chapter 12, that that is different from spiritual gifting that you receive for the working in the body? Okay, so just keep that in mind. A person who, for instance, is a school teacher will not necessarily be gifted to be a spiritual teacher. On the other hand, she might. Maybe she is a school teacher and still gets gifted to be a teacher. Maybe, right? It can happen. Um, but it doesn't always happen. As a matter of fact, I'm the opposite example. I was terrible in school. I did not go to college. I have no seminary training. I, you know, I did none of those normal things that the world would expect you to do. But then what did God do? He made me a teacher. What's he thinking? Really? Right? And yet he made me a teacher and he placed me in this. And then he, he skilled me. He gifted me. He, I mean, and it has been a training process to learn, you know, as you go through it through the years. Um, hopefully I get a little better as I go along. I'm actually getting more forgetful, though. That's kind of scary. But, um, but the gifting, he did not base it on my personal merit as a human being. He didn't look at me and say, you're good at this. I'm going to gift you with that. He can do it that way, but he doesn't always do it. As a matter of fact, Corinthians also says what? He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So he is going to, I love it when God does that too. He takes the most unexpected people sometimes, gives them a gifting, and places them in those positions, and they are dynamite. They're, they're amazing leaders, or they're, they're innovative in, in their abilities to organize, or to uh, exhort people, or to um, even to have mercy. And maybe it's the most gruff, burly guys out there that you can imagine, yet he has a tender heart, and you're like, whoa, it kind of makes you think of John, you know, the one who, that, that loved, uh, that Jesus loved, right, but he was this son of thunder before, and then he became the one that God, that uh, the Lord loved. God transforms us, and he does it in his own way. It is a gift, it's a gift of grace, and I think that's one of the most important things. As we did our word studies, I don't know how far you went in your mind down through this, but to understand that you didn't earn it, it's not necessarily based on your personal uh, experiences or training. However, it can be, but it is not necessarily based on that. What God loves to do, of all things, is pick the most unusual and place them in a place and then say, let them see the light of my love and let them see the light of my spirit in that person as I use them in a place that they really should not even necessarily be, right? It, it's an amazing thing. It is a gift. Okay, so it's a favor. Uh, which one receives without any merit of his own? 
Right. Yeah. You know, I think one of the sermons I heard, the guy, he said, you know, your gift is not the end. Your gift is the source through which the end is achieved. So the fact that you have a gift of teaching, God didn't give me a gift to teach just so that I can say, yeah, I can teach, right? Or I'm a teacher. As a matter of fact, for a long time, I said, I'm not, and I refused to even do it. I had to have a friend really show me, you know, the error of my way in that and move me into it so that I would do it because I didn't want to. But God says, look, I've gifted you, but I didn't gift you to sit by yourself. I didn't gift you so that you are pleased with yourself or that you are edified to yourself. The gifting is given for the purpose of what? The body of Christ. And if it's only for personal edification, this is where another area of often of tongues can go array. Those who have gift of tongues can sometimes, you know, have a teaching given to them that says it's for your own edification. That's a misinterpretation in chapter 14. We're going to get that straightened out hopefully. But anyway, so it's not for self. It's for the body. It's for you to function in the body for the glory of God, right? Okay receives merit of his own it's um okay that okay for right now i'm going to leave that right there because that's going to get expanded when we go into these doctrines next now the other one is the word manifestation now i already uh, talked about this just a little bit but let's talk about manifestation i'm going to put it over here and that's in 12 7 as I'd said earlier, what does that word manifestation mean? Was that one you all looked up? Okay. Okay, a disclosure. A coming to light. An expression, I like that. Um, to make visible to illuminate or make clear I'm going to add on to that or make clear illuminate one of the visible things that came to my mind here because I picture everything I'm a picture person was uh, you know somebody being on a on a stage and the stage is dark have you ever been at concerts and then all of a sudden the light comes on and there's that person under the light that it's it's that kind of idea manifesting it making it to be seen what was not seen so as we spoke of with the Holy Spirit being something that's an invisible thing but how do you make it visible by the gifting the gifting manifests itself in a visible way, the Holy Spirit's work in you, right? So that's where we have 12.7. So now this is what's really cool. To define the, uh, the subject of spiritual gifts then, literally the text itself gave us its own definition of what a spiritual gift is. It's seen in chapter 12, verse 7. And at 12.7 it says, uh, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good.
Very cool, huh? So now we see literally within the text itself. Now this happens quite often actually when you're doing inductive Bible studies where you'll start out just by looking for key words and doing word studies on them. And by the time you're done and you've kind of analyzed each of the words that you've looked up and how they're defined, and then all of a sudden you, you realize there's, a, there's actually a verse that says it just as what as the definition clearly defines it. And so this is one of those examples of that. Right in the text itself in 12.7 explains what a spiritual gift is. It's a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Okay? All right, now let's go on. So the first thing you want to do is look at what um, a, a definition is of your subject. So we've defined our subject now through word study, and we've defined it by making sure that we set our context right, so that we understand what the author is trying to attempt to do here. He's not exhorting them so much as he is correcting them, right, because they've been in errors. Now, there is a list, and you were shown this list. Did you make your list on what the gifts are? I'm not going to write them down, but what are the gifts that you see in there? What are some of the spiritual gifts? How many gifts did you come up with? Okay, and then what did you do with the verse 28? Oh, yeah, <laughs> a few more. Yeah, okay, and it doesn't matter how many because uh, one of the things that, I mean, this becomes almost like a, a discussion, which is to me not as important, but it is good to identify what your spiritual gifting is, um, but for us to count out how many there are and debate, is this a gift or is that a gift? I mean, I, I just don't even want to go there so much. But tell me, what do you see in those in those uh, lists there? What are the gifts there? Do any of them kind of pop out to you personally in a way that, you know, maybe speaks to you that, like, yeah, I wonder if maybe that's my gift, or I've seen that gift exercise, and I think I see that in this person or that person. So what are the gifts? List them. Uh-huh. Word of knowledge. Wow. Okay. So one of the things that we are going to see now is that we've already grown exponentially what we need to look at, right, for our homework over the next 12 weeks, just by looking at that small list. Now, that's not, not a, a total list either. We're going to be looking at some other passages that are going to add to that. So just keep that in mind. The, in, in those uh in the list, though, where he says these are these are gifts, some do this, some do this, and he, and he lists all these things, you do see things like gifts of healing, right, effecting of miracles, right, uh, distinguishing of spirits, various kinds of tongues, also interpretation of tongues, which we don't get to hear of that much talk on that, do we? Um, and yet the other ones were all, yeah, 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 yeah. But then when we hit those particular categories, we kind of back off. And so what I'm, I'm pointing out to you at this point is 
they're listed among all the others. Now, if you're going to eliminate tongues and miracles and healings and, and uh, interpretation of tongues, if you're going to eliminate those in your thinking, if that's been your training by in other Bible studies, then you have to also eliminate all, to be fair, right? You'd have to eliminate the whole thing. No more wisdom, no more knowledge, no more faith. Now, interesting, faith. What do you think about the subject of the gift of faith? How do you think it would differ from the kind of faith that we all have to have to enter into salvation? Or do you think there is a difference? Okay, yes, there is a difference. And how, how might it uh, pre present itself in a unique way? What would be something about the, the gift of faith? It's a, it is pretty amazing, isn't it? They're the ones who, while well, everyone else is the naysayer, they're the one in the background saying, trust me, God is going to do this. I know God's going to do this. And then when it happens, they're like, wow, <laughs> you said God would do this. I didn't believe you, right? So it's And it's an unusual thing. But when it happens, it is God-glorifying. It is something that um, that person could not have known of their own. It's a supernatural thing. Why? Because you have the mind of Christ through the spirit of Christ and you have a gifting given to you for that. How might the gift of faith be an important gift within the body of Christ? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's cool to have a pastor with that gift, isn't it? Yeah, that's awesome. Really cool. So that's just a taste of some of the things that we're going to be getting into as we move through the rest of this study. It's going to be really fun to elaborate our understanding or to just expound our understanding on what these gifts are, how they might have an effect in the body, and why they might be really important. And what's really fun is then once you're kind of familiar with it, then you start looking around and when somebody exercises that gift, you're like, oh, that's the gift of, you know, whatever. And you'll, you'll recognize, and it's really, it's actually kind of fun. It's almost like a game. Have you ever gone to party games, you know, where they put a name on someone's back and you have to figure out who you are by asking questions? Well, you could do that with, with spiritual gifts and find out, <laughs> just go into a party situation and try to figure out who's got what spiritual gift. Uh, Christian party, obviously. Okay. <laughs> right. Caveat that. All right. All right. Now, let me take you real quick. We're going we're gonna to pause for a second. I want to give you some inductive training tips, for, particularly for our, our new gal, for our new, our new students. Okay. Okay. The first thing you want to know, topical studies such as this one, um, they require a lot of commitment to integrity about accuracy of handling the Word of God. So that's why what we're doing so far, it, a, a lot of times what you'll feel like when you're first learning inductive Bible study is that it's a lot of rigid um, like points okay this point this point this point and you're like yeah but where's the application right because that's the kind of studies you're used to being in precept teaches you the value and the importance of of setting your your context and your doctrines down first before you start drawing personal application because that way you get proper interpretation otherwise you can you can handle it totally wrong which is what this church was doing 
right? They were doing it all wrong, and he had to correct them on that. So accurately handling the Word of God is your goal, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you, chapters 1 through 3 of your how-to study book, I don't know if you have one or not yet. Do you have one? Yes, great. And for the rest of you, go home and this week, one day, read chapters 1 through 3 again just to familiarize yourself. And 1 through 3, basically, it's... Um, it's just, it's all the skills that you're going to be exercising in your homework assignments. She's going to tell you things like make a list or mark certain keywords. Like you said, all the colorings and the, it's like, ah, right? For some people, that's scary. Lois has a, um, a sheet that she sends out, right, that has uh, examples of how you can mark keywords. And that sheet will help give you some ideas if that's a struggle for you, um, if you're not a, you know, an artist, <laughs> artistic in your thing. I see everything in colors and pictures. That's how I do. Yes. Yes. On the back of your book, there are some examples. Do you see them? Okay. So that's helpful to know. So chapters one through three is going to basically tell you how to do the, the basic uh, skills that you're going to exercise in your homework throughout this whole thing. For Everyone, though, you absolutely, you need to go to chapter 14 of this book. This is um, how to handle a topical study, how to do a topical study, okay? Studying topically is covered in here, and it is different. Every time you, one of the reasons doing inductive Bible study takes a long time to learn is because you have to experience different literary styles and different types of studies. So I think that you could, all agree that it's very different from doing a book like Revelation, which is, is it is a historical book. It's, it's a book about history that's to come, but it's future. It's prophecy. And much of it is imagery, right? It's done through pictures, basically, that are given to you. How different is that from a book like Corinthians, which is doctrinal? And it's just facts laid out, and it's literally interpreted. But when you interpret Revelation, how do you interpret that? Is it literal interpretation of what, oh, it's a red dragon? You're like, oh, it's a red dragon. No, it's not. A, that's the imagery given, right? We are getting a taste of that in Chapter 12, though, of imagery, aren't we? We're being taught, we are, they're using the idea of a body for imagery. So all these various um, experiences as you're doing inductive Bible study, kind of you have to experience them to get familiar with them, start recognizing them, and actually deliberate a, a deliberate recognition. You need to, to kind of say, oh, I see what we're doing here. Now we've switched from, uh, you know, uh, a literary interpretation. Now this is imagery, so now I have to draw out points, right? Um, so this section here on topical, studying topically is going to take you through all of the basic ways that you would go about doing it. Find all the references, uh, look up all related words, look for the major topical passage that covers the subjects, which is what we've done today, right? 1 Corinthians 12 is the first one. By the way, there are going to be four of them. Um, it's, it is, and I have them listed on this sheet that will come to you, my, my teaching charge. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4. Those are your doctrinal passages and then from those once we establish what we're doing like we are doing here today in just first Corinthians 12 we're going to go through these other three also once we pull out all those points of doctrine 
then we're ready to go in and look at the gifts and with this doctrine as our plumb line, then we can evaluate what we're looking at without violating anything, right? Because we have pillars, don't we? We have two basic or major pillars in doing inductive Bible study. Everybody knows them. Let, let me impress you with how smart my class is. What are our two pillars that we, that we hold to? Never violate known doctrine and context is king or rules for interpretation, right? Context rules for interpretation. That's why I set context before I begin. Context rules and never violate your known doctrine. That's why we're establishing doctrine today. So once you get those two pillars in place, those two pillars are like plumb lines. Precept has a, a cool little thing called a plumb line. Have you, do you know what a plumb line is? Okay, so it hangs from a string, and it looks like a little fishing lure, sort of, with a point on it. And what they used to use it for in the olden days, now we have other things, but they would hold it up next to a door or something that they needed it to be straight, and they would hold, hold it up on there, and if it hung straight, even with it, then they knew the door was straight. But if it was off, and, and like if this board had gone in this direction, they go, whoa, that board's off. That has to be fixed. Well, that's what your doctrines and your context do for you. They're your plumb lines. And that's why there are pillars. And if you don't violate your known doctrines and you let your context rule for interpretation, then those two things are going to help you to have accurate interpretation, right? If you don't have accurate interpretation, if you were to look at 1 Corinthians 12 and not understand that he's actually correcting them, then you could look at some of the things that he says in here and go say, see, it does edify yourself. You can edify yourself. No, that's not what he's saying, and that's bad. <laughs> he's saying, no, and that's bad. It's not supposed to be for that reason because the doctrine was already set that the purpose of your gift is for the common good, right? Okay, now. Okay, so the, the two major pillars, um, four passages. Okay, never, now here's a point just to keep in mind, as always. You never use obscure passages for setting or establishing doctrine. So if you are doing a topical study, maybe, maybe not in this lesson so much, but if you were to do it on your own and you were trying to look some things up, when you hit a passage that's not as concise like this book is, um, you would not want to use those obscure things. There's a passage, and I've told you guys a million times, but in 2 Timothy where it says, um, um, do not, yeah, he says, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you by the laying on of my hands. Okay, now, some people would say that gift is a spiritual gift and that that person received their spiritual gift when what happened? Paul laid on the hands and prayed for them to receive that gift. Is that how you receive a gift? Well, let's look at our doctrines. Let's go back to building doctrines and make sure we get this right, okay? So let's start with the question, who gets a gift? Okay, who gets a gift? What, had, what did you learn when you did your work? Um, we're now at this point down in verses 8 through 11, basically, right? 
as he desired. So each one gets a gift then, right? So who gets a gift? Each one. So 8, 11, I think it's also in 7. So each one, each one of us, each person, each believer receives a spiritual gift, correct? Do, so what does that tell you about people who would say to you, I don't think I have a spiritual gift? If you're in the body of Christ, you got one. Because he says he gives it to each one. So you may be unaware of what your gift is yet for whatever the reason. I, and I've talked to many lovely people who have been in faith for many years. They just, now if I ask them, well, what's your spiritual gift? Do you know what your spiritual gift is? They go, no, not really sure. I mean, it's kind of sad. We want to know what our gift is. If we've got one, you need to know what it is and be using it, right? So God gives it to each one. In 18, he goes on to expound on that. And he talks about, what is your key word in verse 18 to 26? Body and members. So each body, each member. So he goes, in that one, he talks about each one of them, right? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. So all members, each member, right? All members of the body. I just put 18. Then I put 27 and 28, basically. But there are lots of verses you could pull out on that, correct? So that's, that establishes another doctrine concerning spiritual gift. Who gets one? Everyone. So just to know that as a doctrinal point is important for you and I as we study this particular subject so that we understand that when we're observing people individually in our lives or as we're going through scripture, what we can understand is that that person has a spiritual gifting. Now, that it's really interesting when you start looking at this, the text itself to try to analyze what spiritual gift they have. That becomes really fun. It's almost like... In, like being an investigator, you know, you're looking for the clues. It's a lot of fun. Okay, so who gets a gift? Now, how are the gifts given? Okay, how are they given? You said as God, as God willed okay and that's which what verse 11 right I see it okay but actually that one says the spirit I'm going to change that as spirit I'm going to have to write the whole thing all over because it's not in a that's right the spirit distributes To each one, just as he, as he wills, as he wills, in verse 11. Okay, very good. So that's the first point that we need to know. How are the gifts given? They're given by the Spirit. The Spirit distributes to each one as he wills. Okay? 
Any other verses that teach us about how are the gifts given? It was one of your homework assignments to answer these kinds of questions. She gave you a whole day on this, and she broke down all these questions. How do you get them? When do you get them? You know. Okay, verse 7, what does it say there? Okay, again, back to 7, right? Um, okay, given by the Spirit then, again, in 7, okay? Actually, if you go to 4 through 6, what do you see? There are varieties of gifts that are what? And we said a gift is what? Unmerited favor that's given to you, correct? It's something that's given. So if it's a gift and it's given, how are the gifts given? According to verse 4, 5, and 6, what? The same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God. Now, what do you see in there? The Trinity. Isn't that cool? I don't know about you. I just drew a nice little triangle over the whole thing and colored it in just to show that this this opening statement this is right at the beginning of this subject matter he makes it clear that this is a work of the triune god the father the son and the holy spirit all three are co co coordinating together was there something in that if you examine that what do you think is the reason that this author lays it out like this why does god lay that out for us in this way that it's father son and spirit all that work huh Very good. Excellent. Now, when you're looking at what we're studying here is this is the, the work of um, spiritual gifting in what? The body of Christ, right? The collective body, the assembly of the body. So what's demonstrated for you then if it's the triune God? Very good. Isn't that awesome? Say that again nice and loud. Can you do that? Can you say it again? It parallels. You've got the God who is one and the three different officers or persons. And then you have the body with the different members with the different ones. Very good. The Godhead basically demonstrates that there is diversity within unity then, doesn't it? Because we know the Godhead is a three-in-one God, Right. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. And I mean, remember that passage in John that kind of lays that all out? And, and then he brings us in, and then you are in me, and I am in you, and right? So the unity, and we learned in our covenant study over and over again how two become one, right? Because there's a unity. And then once we become one with Christ, then we also become one with what? Your enemies become my enemies. Your friends become my friends. This is Old Testament. We're looking at how that was displayed, right? And so as David and Jonathan went into unity with one another in a, in a covenant, then you also brought in what? Saul, right? King Saul became part of him, him too. So there was this unity that's depicted within the subject matter of covenant that two become one. God, the Godhead here, the three-in-one God is one person, and they're in unity, and yet what do they each hold? Distinct offices, so to speak, or distinct roles within the 
within the expression of God in his work. So it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each, although they each have their role, there's unity. Isn't that a great thing? that he, So he starts out by demonstrating it through the triune God that they each have their own roles to hold, but they are one. And then he moves into the body of Christ, and he begins to explain how each of us have our own roles, but yet what? We are one. And then he, he takes and, and introduces the simile as we move on it, with the subject of a body itself, a physical body. Why do you think he uses a physical body as a demonstration? Again, we're right back, aren't we? Right back to where uh, the whole purpose for any kind of imagery like that is to take the unknown and make it better known, right? To explain the unseen through the seen. This is why God gave us the temple, for instance, right? And all the temple articles and all the temple worship practices. Why? He says in Hebrews that that what we see here on the earth is a shadow of what what is in the heavenlies right and so we get to see in a physical way the the truth of the gospel of Jesus who would come to be the lamb of god and he does it by giving them a a worship system where they sacrifice a lamb and therefore they could equate it and make that relationship connection in their brain and in their thinking something that spiritual now becomes more tangible and understandable Lots and lots of uses of this kind of teaching in scripture, right? Um, I am a tree, I am a rock, I'm a door, I'm a sheep, I am a, right? And so here we have the picture of the body. So the body is used to explain a spiritual truth through a physical thing that is known. Makes the unknown made known through the known, right? Okay. Um, So it comes through the spirit. We're going to put on here then, we're going to add in here, by the triune God. And that's in four to six. We see that how do you receive, how are this, the gifts given? They're given by the triune God. And so then there's another one in, um, these are about the spirit, correct? Primarily. Now we get the triune God. Here we get the spirit. Now show me what else we have in other passages. Besides the Holy Spirit being the one that distributes to each one as he wills. What about in 18 and 28? Yeah, God does it. God has appointed. Now we can go back again to that verse that we were just talking about where it says that in 2 Timothy where he says, Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you by the laying on of my hands. Is that how a person receives a spiritual gift? By me laying on my hands and praying for someone to receive it? No. Now, could I be present when that occurs for them because they received the spirit at that moment and maybe I've been um, witnessing to them and I'm present when all the... Yes, that could happen. But most of us, our spiritual giftings are not be really fully manifested until we've had a little bit of time in Christ and begin to walk and exercise it because our gifts are all different a gift like tongues would be something that might be manifested immediately but maybe not some people don't receive their gift of tongues the very moment of their salvation it may take a week or two or a little while even 
Um, that's not the teaching that is often given about that, but it's it's true. I mean, the, the spiritual gift will become evident in that person's life when God needs it to be used for its designed purpose, correct? So they're speaking in tongues. You know, we're going to get into it later, but the gift of tongues has a design purpose, right? So we'll, we'll get there when we get there, but it's going to be a while. But just understand that. My gift of teaching, trust me, when I received the Holy Spirit, you did not see me as a, as a teacher when I first got saved. It took me years. Why? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa, the, the one honest woman in the room, because she loves me <laughs> and because she's a teacher, so she understands. Okay, yeah, because honestly, until I had learned something that was of value to speak on, especially something like a, a, a spiritual subject, right? Now, what's very interesting, though, is I did begin to teach almost immediately, but I was teaching girls in action. You remember Girls in Action, Janet? was a missions training for first through sixth grade kids. And I had a board. I'm not kidding you. I had a board on the wall, and it was cut in the middle. And I remember the first subject thing that I really wanted to teach was uh, about the subject of Halloween. Why, I don't know, but it was in our stuff, believe it or not. Had to do with missions and what they did overseas versus what we do here. So I put... Um, the, this is what the world does. And then I wanted to say, but this is what God does. And guess what? I went researching on that. There was nothing. <laughs> That's when I found out Halloween is not of God. <laughs> so there you go. But guess what? I was using my teaching gift before I even knew. I was even using inductive work, you know, precept method before I even knew about precept, years before I knew about precept. So interesting. So it's funny, though, you don't really always see the gifting in a person immediately. It takes a little bit of time. And as they begin to serve and as God begins to give them works to do, it'll start to reveal itself, right? So we're going to talk more about how do you know what your gifting really is? Um, uh, what should the indicators be for whether or not you really have a gift or you don't have a gift? We're going to talk about those kinds of things as we move on in this. All right? All right, so God has appointed uh, the gifts. It is not something that you get by someone giving it to you or someone praying for you to receive it. You don't even, although it's not there's, not, there's no saying that you can't ask God for a gift, but there's no guarantee you'll get the gift you ask for because guess what? Who, who gets to determine? God has determined. And by the way, uh, let's talk about uh, the when part. When do you get that spiritual gift? <laughs> Very good. You went right to the perfect verse. Okay. Um, hold on a second. Let me get this. Um, and that is in verse what? 13, right. When we are baptized into the one body by the Spirit. That's in verse 13. And it goes on to say also, it expounds on that, just so that you understand it even more clearly, not only when you were baptized, but what? 
when you were made to drink of the same of the one spirit when you were made to drink of the one spirit so when did that happen uh-huh exactly so you tell me does that mean that years later you can say lord give me this gift or is it already a done deal you either have it or you don't. Now, you could certainly pray later, Lord, if I have this gift, can you make it more manifest in me? Or can you give me opportunities to use it? I think another thing that he will do for you is he will even give you a desire to do it. You know, like I have no desire whatsoever to go and sing in the choir or to, or to work in the kitchen, right? Although those are places I did start serving God when I first got saved because I had no other equipping, right? I really didn't have I wanted to serve God somehow and I really wasn't equipped I didn't know I had a teaching gift at that point and, and I didn't even know about spiritual gifts for that matter at that point but I just knew I needed to be serving God somehow so I wanted to be useful <laughs> right so I started by singing the choir pretty soon they were sending me checks in the mail please do not come to choir practice <laughs> we will give you tithe money <laughs> no I'm just kidding but you know I found out what I'm not good at by doing it right no, you're not good at singing, so don't come back <laughs> when you were made to drink of one spirit. Okay, so at salvation, in other words, at salvation. That's good to know, right? Now you know when you got your gift. You know who gets a gift. You know how the gifts are given. And you know when you got your spiritual gift. Now, why? Why do we have spiritual gifts? Now, this is very interesting. You kind of have to uh, go through, in particular, verses 14 through, like, about 26, right? To kind of glean this answer out in here. Well, that's true. That starts you off. You're right about that one. Okay, so why do we have spiritual gifts? Okay, so why? For the common good. And what does that mean for the common good? Now, if you are going to contrast that with something, then common good means for the general good of the body of Christ, right? Therefore, it, what is its emphasis not based upon or for? For the individual. You might want to, in your mind, contrast that because your gift is not really for your benefit. As a matter of fact, P.S., and by the way, for those of you who are deep in ministry and have very strong giftings and you know what they are already, you tell me, is it, is it a cakewalk? If you have a gift, let's say like Lois, I know of administration, I always like to use her because she's an obvious one in the room, right? But her gifting of administration, so Breeze, right? No, no imposition in your life whatsoever to organize my class, right? <laughs> it just zip, right? Well, it, it looks like it zips because she's so good at it, but she's had a lot of experience, right? But I can tell you that if you have a gifting, and you do, that whatever your gifting is, it's going to require some sacrifice. It's going to require some steadfastness, some 
commitment to it. It's going to require some discipline on your part. It's it certainly is going to be something that you are going to be doing at your ex own personal expense at times. You're going to miss out on some things other that are going on in the world around you or in your life around you because you are doing God's work in that capacity, whatever it is. You know, I, I spend a lot of time at my computer while my family does other things, right? They go off and have fun while I sit and do homework, and I love my homework, so don't feel sorry for me. I love it. But it is a, it is, it, there is some sacrifice. So that's what gifts are all about. Why? They're for the common good, not necessarily for my good. They're not to necessarily make me feel good, although i got to say I do feel really good. I like it. But... Yes. Yes. Okay, and so, and is that is there a point that we can add to our list then on this that comes out of the text here in twelve? Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Why do we have spiritual gifts? Um, we are God's worker, right? Or we are working. It's God's work through us and in us. So that's its purpose. So in other words, God is using us. For his purpose. One of the things that runs into in the culture is that we somehow think gifts are like a piece of pie, and we all think it's a bigger piece of pie. Like that's that's a very natural way of looking at it. God doesn't have a piece of pie. God is infinite, and that. But that's the way we look at it, and that's the way that gets pie. You have this gift, well, you're more special than this. Oh yeah, that's a whole nother subject. We aren't there yet, but yes, exactly. And that is so true. One of the things that we do see in this is we have this diversities, but he goes on by using the demonstration of the body. What does he say about you know um, how he's placed us in the in the body? Twelve to tw or eighteen to twenty six. He says, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desires. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Now, what does he mean by that, if they were all one member? Think of it, one of the gifts. Yeah, if we were all the same. Think of it. If we were all servants, Lois would have, Lois would have nothing to do. Oh, yay! <laughs> yeah, and if we were all teachers... We would all be talking over one another. If we all had gifts of mercy, we'd be huddled around the table crying about our, you know, our, our problems with one another. That's all we'd get done. But in the meantime, what, what would not be getting done if we were all doing the same thing, right? So in this, now the very interesting thing here is in this church, they were having a problem about that, right? What seems to be the problem with this church? What do they all seem to be coveting? The gift of tongues. And they're all wanting to gift, speak in tongues. Why do you think they all want to be speaking in tongues? Why do they seem to want that gift? Okay. Tell me. Okay. It seems more spiritual. And it does. Because if, if somebody has the gift of tongues, there's really an 
sort of a supernatural evidence. There you go. That's what it. Yeah, right, right. So you have a private line I don't have. Oh, I want that. That's not fair. Okay, so if you give the um, attitude, which this church seems to be doing, now really you got to set context on this again too. Where are we? What? It, where is Corinth? Location geographically? They're in Greece. Okay, but it doesn't know. Sorry. Greece. They're in Greece. Okay. And Greece is all about what? What did the Greek mind, especially in the days of Paul, what were they all about? Philosophy and spiritualism. And they had um, the oracles, remember? The oracles that would speak things. And I mean, they were into all these kind of exciting external sign things that that were were lighting everyone's it's one of the reasons when Jesus came doing miracles it was so captivating for the people <gasps> Ooh, look look so they were following him in masses to see him perform do you remember what um which which of the leaders was it that wanted him to come and do a a, a miracle for him Herod was it Herod? Okay, so yeah, we should know this because we just did Luke, right? So so Herod's like, I want to see, and he wanted him to, he wanted to have audience with him because he wanted him to do a miracle for him. So you got to understand the the Corinth was a church that was all caught up in the externals. Early in the book, chapters one, two, and three, particularly, who were they following? Who were they following after instead of God? Men, right? Different teachers, men. They were impressed with the charismatic uh, uh, utterances that came out of Apollos. He had such a great way of speaking, and he was so um, smooth, right? And so a, a person who's not that skilled, that is maybe m more... You know, if you if you look at someone like I hate to say that myself because Lisa has me in trouble all the time. Don't talk yourself down, okay? But but I'm not a gifted speaker per se. I don't would you would never want to sit through a sermon with me. But to teach is different. It's a different exercise of things, right? But they were impressed with people who could use big words and and could come up with great new ideas, things that had never been heard of and try to bring them in. And is that not what the world often is looking for? Something to tickle the ears? And so this is what was going on in Corinth. And so he was saying, we, you know, we have these gifts, but we all want to have the same gift. And there's a problem with that. And so Paul is addressing that problem right here, saying, look, you are not all gifted in the same way, and you should not expect it, you should not seek after it, you should not want that, right? You, you need to understand that all the gifts are important, and then he gives an example of that through the body. Why do we have the gifts for the common good? You can't all be an ear, you can't all be an eye, you can't all be a mouth, right? Yeah, look at verse 25. What is the ultimate goal for why we have those spiritual gifts in that verse? Yeah, to give care for one another. So if you know that, that's what the purpose of your gifting is, is for the common good and so that we reach out to one another and give the same kind of care. In other words, the foot helps the mouth, right? All the time, foot in my mouth. I, 
helps me shut up when you're supposed to shut up, right? Uh, or the or the 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 mercy gift helps the person who is maybe the exhorter. The exhorter has a list. This is how you can solve your problem. Follow me. And the comforter comes behind and puts their arm around him and says, it's going to be fine. And they help that person to be able to follow the exhorter, right? So you need all the gifts because they work together in a collaborative way. Okay, so that's why we have the gifts. Now, um, why do we have then different gifts? It's kind of the same Why do we have spiritual gifts? But this is, why do we have different gifts? Yeah, basically, it's so pragmatic in the answer, right? It's, it's Basically, it is the will of God, and it is the will of the Spirit, according to 11 and 18. But it's also because that's how you get everything covered. Everything gets done, right? We have need of one another. Look at verse 25, though, again. What might be another purpose that God has in us having different gifts? So there be no division. What's the problem with this church? There's division. <laughs> their division is based on um, immaturity in their faith and not growing up in that way. But it's also because in this case, they're all wanting to have the same gift. And so guess what they're doing with the other gifts? They're neglecting them, they're ignoring them, they're, or they're demeaning them, right? They're looking down upon. Now, there's a lot of scripture that says do not look down on one another, right? Um, the physical body, let's look, let's see how much time have we got. I've got like three or four minutes here to wrap this up. Why do we have the gifts? We've, we've covered all that. We've covered the fundamentals. These are your doctrines. That sets your context. You've got your defined understanding of what spiritual gifts is. Now, now let's talk about the proper function of the church. Um, I want to look at a couple of verses. When, when we're talking about why do we have all these gifts and why are they differing, why are they different kinds of gifts, what is well what's the result of having various kinds of gifts yeah so let's do this what is the result if you're going to have spiritual gifts he he gives us a picture of the body what is the result is that we would now say that again Everyone will be cared for. Everyone will be cared for. Yes. All members will be honored. And you can almost go back to verse 7 with that. That manifestation of the Spirit will be made evident. And if you're doing that, if you are manifesting God in the work that you are doing, God is being glorified, right? And that that is also one of the end. Particularly when you talk about gifts like the the evangelist, for instance. So when, what, is his, what is his goal in his ministry? To bring people in, right? But if you are exercising that in a way 
that is dishonoring to God, maybe your doctrines are in error or maybe you do it in a way where I, I used to kind of think about the fire and brimstone pastors, you know, where they're yelling at you and calling you a heathen and you're going to hell. And although I actually like those sermons because that's my prophet gift in me. It says, that's right. There's right and wrong here. Right. But, but if you are not glorifying to God, when you exercise it, then there can be a problem, right? You have to do it in a way that is glorifying to God. All members are going to be honored. God is going to be honored. Okay. Yes. There will be unity in the body. Right. Yes, yes, yes. I think for me, you know, that's one of the, when I, because of the things you've taught me, when I go and I see someone else, I'm like, I want to bring you up. Like, that's, that's part of Right. I think that if you get taught that, or, you know, if you're a person who has, whatever your gifting is, if you are mentoring people who are coming behind you to maybe even take your place one day. Or training them so that they can go out and do other things. Actually, Brenda and I talked about this yesterday at church. She's um, embarking on a new precept class in another area after this one for various reasons. But I'm excited for her because I'm thinking she's been trained in a way that a lot of precept students don't get trained. Because I I use strong emphasis on you understanding the... um, the inductive skills that you're doing. I want you to understand why you're doing what you're doing, not just by rote coloring pictures and, you know, coloring words and making lists, but I want you to understand why you're doing that and what that's going to result in and connecting the dots for you, right? So you've had that training and now you get to go into a new teaching environment with maybe students and even a teacher who doesn't know those things. Many teachers do not teach what I'm teaching. So it's great. I raise her up and I'm not going to be possessive of her because I'm excited for her to move on, number one, for her own benefit because it it helps her experience other kinds of teaching methods, but also she can share what she's already learned, right? That's exactly what Lisa's talking about. Don't, you know, don't be possessive of your of your thing, but your point is that you are going to be giving care for one another. You're going to be exhorting people to grow up in their faith. All the members are going to be honored in that way rather than being a jealousy, which is what was going on in this church. This church was not doing those things. This this church, they were there was divisions and quarrels among them. Keep that in mind as you look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 in particular on this subject of spiritual gifts. If you read it through that lens, understanding they're doing it wrong and he's correcting them, you will get a better interpretation on what you're looking at there. Okay, there was a couple of things. We will have care for one another. Ecclesiastes, it says... Woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. We need one another, right? 
And in Philippians 2, 4, it says, and this is another book we've already studied. It says there, do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And that is our goal in our exercising of spiritual gifts. Um, some parts of the body, um, we really cannot do without. You can't do without your heart. There's an analogy in that. You can't do without your heart. Um, but if, if, they're, if they're cut out because of your jealousy, because you don't have that gift, you literally can kill the body, right? So if you take the heart and throw it aside because you're jealous of it or you're angry with it, you cut it off, your body dies. Some parts we might be able to make do without, but the body does not function in its best capacity. So the goal is, by his using this analogy of a physical body, as he shows us ultimately we need all of our parts. Don't let anyone tell you you don't need your gallbladder. Really, if anybody's never had a gallbladder out, you know, guess what? You really did need that gallbladder, and you find that out real quick. Now, can you live without it? Yes, but it's not the best function of the body, right? All right. Okay, so we laid down our basics today. We got some of them out of the way. Now, next week we're going to move forward with that, continuing to build um, your doctrines 